Can inpatient hospital care be delivered right into your home? Will the hospital of the future only consist of emergency rooms, operating rooms, and ICUs? I'm Bon Q, the host of Design Lab, a podcast that explores the intersection of design and health. Our guest today is Dr. Helen Oyang. She is an emergency physician and associate professor in emergency medicine at Columbia University, New York City, and a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine. She's also written for The Atlantic, Harper's, LA Times, The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and other media outlets. Her writing has been a finalist for the National Magazine Award, anthologized in the Best American Science and Nature Writing, and funded by the Pulitzer Center. Helen has also worked in 20 countries across five continents in public health and humanitarian assistance. Helen is a graduate from Brown University, went to medical school at Hopkins, and has a master's in public health from Harvard, where she was also a Zuckerman Fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government's Center for Public Leadership. She completed her training at Harvard at the Mass General Hospital and Brigham and Women's Hospital. Stop by our website at designlabpod.com. There you can find show notes from each week, learn more about our guest, and get links to related content from each episode. There's a link there where you can subscribe to our newsletter. Each week, our producer, Rob Puglisi, will send you show notes and links right in your email inbox whenever a new episode drops. Thanks to everyone who is a regular listener. If you're new to this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Give us five stars. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Tell someone about the show. That is how you support us. Now, here's my conversation with Dr. Helen Oying. Helen Oying, welcome to Design Lab. I am very excited to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I read this article that you wrote that just came out in the New York Times Magazine. The title is, Your Next Hospital Bed Might Be at Home. I love this article, and in the article, you talk about how the American health system desperately needs more hospital beds, and you and I are both emergency room doctors, so we experience patients boarding in the emergency room for hours and even days waiting for a bed. Can you talk about how dire the situation is across the U.S.? of communities not having access to inpatient hospital beds. Yeah, so we saw it during the pandemic, right? It was scary. I mean, the New York Times had a tracker and people can look at their state and where they lived and how many hospital beds were empty for them. So it had always been a problem that was always going to be a bigger problem because the baby boomer generation was getting older. So we always knew we were going to face this problem eventually. Then the pandemic hit and it just came much more quickly and it was frightening. There's some stats that you have in 2020, 19 rural hospitals were closed down. That's more than any in the previous decade. And and there's something like 30% of all rural hospitals are at risk of closing. Is that is that true? Yeah, that's true. And Actually, the number was higher, but the federal government sort of redefined what rural hospital means. So now it's nearly 30%. But yeah, it's true. And it, it's oh scary. Gosh. And we're talking about these tiny standalone facilities. You know, it's the only place 
that people can get health care in some of these rural communities. So if one of them closes, you know, they're really out of luck. Mm. And what is the hospital at home movement <laughs> that you write about in the article? So the concept of hospital at home is not new. It's been done for decades, especially in Europe and Australia. And even here, back in the 90s, Bruce Leff, who's a geriatrician and a professor at Johns Hopkins, had piloted a program. Mm. So I was a medical student at Hopkins, so I knew Dr. Leff from that. We haven't talked in decades until I was writing this article. Oh, cool. But he did take us on a home visit. It wasn't part of hospital at home. It was just a routine home visit that he did for one of his patients. So there we were bunch of medical students in our short white coats and we were just bumbling along this busy roadway there were weeds it was a hot july day i was sweating through my white coat <laughs> i was really uncomfortable i really didn't understand what we were doing taking this 20-minute walk and then we get to his patient's home and she couldn't walk she was pretty housebound and she was just so happy that her doctor came to see her and that she didn't have to you know, take the medical van and go to the clinic and wait. And that was the only home visit I had ever been on before or since. But it really stuck in my mind this entire time through all the years. Yeah, I don't think I ever been on a home visit in medical school or residency. It was pretty unique. Even now, I think it would be unique. But you write before the 20th century treatment at home was the norm. Is that right? Yeah. People didn't go to hospitals. Hospitals were bad places. You went there if you didn't have family, you didn't have friends, and the community had abandoned you. Most of the treatment you would get in the hospital, you can get in your own home. And then things start to change. In France and Germany, they started to do more high-tech care. They start to do things mm -hmm. like autopsies and all of that moved into the hospital. And then surgeries became more high-tech and sterilized and anesthesia. So you couldn't do that in people's home. Mm -hmm. And medical students as well, they didn't want to be in the classroom. They didn't want didactic lectures. They wanted to learn. So they moved on to the wards. Mm -hmm. And then the Civil War happened. And especially in the later years, you know, the public saw large swaths of men being treated in these institutions. And for the most part, they did okay. And the care was organized. So people started to have a lot more faith in the hospitals. Mm. Is there a perception among patients that you get better care in a hospital rather than at home? That, that if care is delivered at home, that it is inferior or subpar? I think so. I mean, you go to a hospital and it's it's pulsating with machines. There's doctors in white coats. There's lots of nurses around. There's lots of people around. Now, they might not all be tending to you, but you see all of this with your eyes. And it seems like you're probably getting better care. But I think as we've now seen more and more, there's a lot of hospital-acquired infections. Patients are getting upset about being woken up at all hours. Mm. The monitor is beeping and nobody comes and turns it off. So as all of that is coming to light. So annoying. I don't know how <laughs> patients ever fall asleep in yeah, the hospital. And then they can't get better. And these hospitals are getting more and more expensive. 
they can cost up to you write two billion dollars. Yeah, and even more in some cities. So five hundred bed hospital, it can cost two billion dollars to build. So the hospital is probably literally the most expensive building in a community in, <laughs> in most states and counties. Tell us about did you go on for when writing the article? Did you go to New Mexico for this? Yeah, I went to New Mexico and I also went to Kentucky. And you talk about some patients getting hospital at home care. Can you describe that for those who have not read the article? And we'll put a link to the article in the show notes. Yeah, I went to Albuquerque and I met Dr. DePero and she actually was a resident under Dr. Leff as well. What? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't overlap with her or anything, but she is out there. She works in one of the longest running programs in the country since 2008. Mm. So Presbyterian Health Services, they have their own insurance. They're kind of like a Kaiser. So some patients have their insurance. And for that reason, they were able to start a program and sort of maintain it over the years. So I got to ride in the car with her and follow her around as she went and took care of patients. And she really does it in this old school way. She's one of those doctors who really knows all the details about her patients' lives. She doesn't even seem to look in the chart. And she knows everything about their family members and they know her. And she goes to their homes and cares for them. And then the nurses also come at different times throughout the day as well. Mm. And how sick are these patients? Are, the, are these patients who would normally get admitted to an inpatient bed, but instead they are getting treatment in their own home? Yeah. The first patient I met, Manuelita Romero, she was the first patient in the article. She was in her 90s. She had terrible congestive heart failure. You know, she was very sick, but she wanted to be at home. Her son wanted her to be at home. So she was getting her IV antibiotics and her diuresis all at home. That's someone who I would automatically admit to yeah. hospital. Like, <laughs> exactly. I'm like, there's no way I'm sending a 90-year-old patient home who needs diuresis and IV antibiotics. Yeah. I'm like, you are getting admitted. And exactly. then no, no one, the medical admitting team wouldn't fight me on that. They'd be like, yes, <laughs> this person meets criteria for not even a observation bed, but a full inpatient bed. That's amazing. Yeah, it really was amazing to see. And how much is the family doing for that patient's care? Well, in this case, uh, Manuel Ita Romero, she was pretty bedbound, but her son was amazing. And he was planning on getting her out of bed, which is something that probably wouldn't happen in the hospital because she really barely walks at all. So they probably would have just let her stay in the bed. So he did a lot for her. But the second gentleman that was in the story, Bob Salzman, he lived in a trailer, had three dogs. He didn't have any help mm -hmm. at all. And he was also able to be hospitalized because he was just getting IV fluids and monitoring for his kidney function. Mm. And so many questions I want to ask about this. <laughs> Are the patients happy getting care at home? Because I find it, you know, the patients I see in the emergency room that I know need to get admitted, there's two different subgroups. You know, one is like, I want to get admitted to the hospital because I don't feel safe going home. And another subset, which I think is a minority, would go, 
I don't want to get admitted to the hospital. Is there any way I could just get discharged and be treated at home? Yeah. So the patients I met, for the most part, they really wanted to go home. So as I pointed out in the article, you know, we need to figure out how this is going to work on a larger scale in our healthcare system across the entire country if we're going to continue doing this. Because right now, when you look at the studies, patients have the consent, right, to go home and their families have the consent. So Mm -hmm. almost by default, they're a little bit Mm self-selected. So the patients I met were thrilled to be home. Some of them had been hospitalized for a few days. They still needed a couple more days of hospitalization, but they just really wanted to get out of there. Mm -hmm. So hospital at home allowed them to go home and sort of continue getting the same care. If you were to predict the future, is this going to become more commonplace? Would this be the norm that hospitals only admit the sickest patients, the ones who need to go to an ICU bed or need emergency care or need an operation and the rest of care can actually happen at your home? Or is that pie in the sky? I think we're very far from that, but I think it's definitely moving that direction because, you know, from the pandemic, but even before that, patients want the things at home. I mean, people are now used to using telehealth. They don't want to leave the home if they don't have to. So hospitals are reaching a point where they're almost expected to at least be able to offer it. Then you have these startups that are happening everywhere. You've probably heard of Dispatch Health, I think was started by two Mm-hmm. ER doctors, but you know, they're working with insurance companies to just bypass the hospital. I mean, hospital care is extraordinarily expensive. Yeah. So if you can just keep the patient from going to the ER and you meet them at home and you find out, oh, they need IV antibiotics or IV fluids, and we don't have to have them go in at all, they're doing that. And hospitals know that. They're playing defense. Mm. What are some of the barriers for preventing hospital at home? from happening widespread and scaling? Well, there's a lot of costs up front. So you you have to figure out these logistics. You need x-ray companies that can come at any hour and be close enough to actually go to your patient's home. You need to figure out how you're going to get all your medications there, how they're going to be stored. You're going to have to figure out if the patient gets so sick, how are they going to get back to the hospital? You need to figure out the criteria that a patient, when they meet it, they have to go back to the hospital. And then there's all the monitoring. Are you going to be a program that has 24-7 telemetry with one of those biotech patches? Mm -hmm. So all of that needs to be sorted out. And do you think health systems are going to be doing that? Or it's going to come from like these startup companies, private startup companies outside of health systems? Well, the Omnibus bill that President Biden signed a one point trillion well now it's a law. They are putting money towards the waivers so people can get hospital at home until the end of 2024. So the waiver that happened during the pandemic, that's going to be extended. But also part of that, they are pledging that they were going to study all of these hospital at home models and figure out who should really be treated mm. at home and what's the best way to do it. And are there people being left behind or certain people being pushed into doing it. So all of that hopefully will start to be sorted out by the federal government. But as you said, I think some of these startups are going to play a role as well. Yeah. How did you come up with this idea? Did the New York Times say, hey, write about hospital at home? Or is this something that you were 
thinking about? <laughs> no, it's something I've been thinking about for a long time. I, I had been sort of following what people were doing for a couple of years, just very minimally, maybe a couple of times a year. I'll look at Medically Home's website. I found out, I actually didn't even know that Bruce Leff was doing this. So I, I had known a little bit about it, but when the pandemic hit and the waiver passed, so CMS said for Medicare patients that you no longer have to be in the hospital 24 seven, mm. which was required before because they required nurses to be around 24 seven and they passed this waiver. I s knew at that point that everything had changed and hospital at home was getting this massive boost and it was mm. probably going to be in everybody's home soon. I'm just fascinated by this process of, <laughs> you know, coming up with the story, pitching it, and then the process of writing about it. So you pitch this to New York Times and do they go, hey, that's great. Go for it. And we'll give you like a couple of months to write it up. I wish it was that easy. We'll, we do go back and forth because they want to make sure. I mean, it's hard, right? Because I'm pitching a story and I haven't fully reported it yet, though I do definitely do some pre-reporting. So I talk to people and make sure I have access and that I would be able to visit and that there was really a story there. And then I mm. write it up for my immediate editor and then he'll go back and forth with other editors to figure out if it's a fit and if they want to take the story in one direction versus another. And then over several months, I report it out and write it. Mm. And these are long pieces. How many words was that article? <laughs> I think it was almost 6,500 words. Yeah. I think it's on the shorter side for me. <laughs> it's in the New York Times, like Sunday magazine section. So it's not a small piece. Does it take you, are you writing days on end when you're not working your shifts in the hospital, like working on these pieces? I'm definitely reporting for longer than I'm actually writing. But yeah, magazine stories are long and kind of why I love them so much, because you can really get into it. I'm curious now, was this always part of your plan to become a physician writer when you entered into medical school, or just something that happened later on in your training? <laughs> no, not at all. Do you want the long story or the short oh, story? Oh, I want the long story. <laughs> <laughs> so I always loved writing. I was always just much more a humanities person, I think, than a science uh, person. Um, me I too. found science and math much harder. Yay. <laughs> That's why we're here. <laughs> science was actually my heart. I did not do well in my science classes. I actually did not like Same. my science classes. I was a classical studies major in college. Oh, really? Yeah. So I studied like ancient Greek texts. Oh, my God. We need to talk more about that. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> That's why we're chatting now. Yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely was not a science person, but I was taking a writing class in seventh grade and we read these stories by Richard Seltzer. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's no. was, he, he died a few years ago, but he was a surgeon at Yale mm. and he wrote these beautiful stories. And one of them we read was about his work in Honduras. He was a plastic surgeon. So he went and fixed the cleft lip of a child and the child actually mm. died on the table while he was doing the surgery. And he really felt like he owed it to her family, her mother to fix it. So he actually, in the middle of the night, goes down to the morgue and finishes the surgery so that they could see her wow. face. And that story, I don't know, it just stuck with me. Yeah. And I was like, 
I want to work overseas too. And I guess I will just have to be a doctor too. So I went into medical school really to do humanitarian work, which I did for many years and then sort of pivoted more to writing. Where were you working when you work in a lot of countries? Did you work with nonprofit organizations in different countries doing relief work? Yeah, I worked with a lot of nonprofits. I also worked with the UN and also academic institutions. So I got a pretty decent survey, I think. Yeah. And how do you find time to write during the day? Because you have a busy day job working in the emergency room and being an academic physician. And did you have to go to more schooling to learn how to write or you just have always been a writer? I think the best way to learn writing is with a great relationship with your editor and with each story that I write, I feel like I learned so much. I also audited a few classes at the journalism school, which was very helpful too, mm. like just workshopping with other students there. But it's hard, you have to make time. And I work mostly weekends now at this point, so I can have time during the week. You're one of those doctors, you work only weekends? Clinically? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Is your family a family of writers or physicians? Neither. I'm the first doctor in my family and the only doctor, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I think nobody isn't either. I did not grow up reading The New Yorker. I'm envious of people who read The New Yorker and talked about their families at the dinner table because <laughs> I did not come from a family like that. And Back you, then, you know, there really wasn't the internet, so you had to yeah. like know about something to seek it out. It didn't come to you. Your family is Chinese, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, my family did not read The, the New Yorker at, at all. <laughs> and what do you think about you, your current path of being a physician and being a writer, and you've published in so many national outlets? I'm not sure they fully understand what I'm trying to do. <laughs> That's so typical of Asian families. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you have advice for people listening who may be in a medical field and want to write more? Do you have any tips for them? That's a good question. I think this sounds very basic, but I think just start writing. Mm. <laughs> you don't need to take a class. I think you can just start writing it yeah. from your experiences as a starting point and go from there. And there's so much material that, that we have as physicians of the, of the human stories that we get in our jobs. I think that's why a lot of physicians write because there's so much material that we have in our day jobs. Yeah, that's true. But I try not to write too much about my day job and my patients, I think, just to have some separation yeah. also for the patient's sakes. I read another article that, that you wrote. You have a lot of them, but it was entitled, Can Virtual Reality Help Ease Chronic Pain? And you have the stat there that 50 million Americans live with chronic pain. I'm curious to know how you chose this topic and and can you describe some of the most interesting things that you found in this space of using VR to treat chronic pain? Well, you know, Bon, you're, you're an emergency physician. I mean, chronic pain, we as doctors, we don't know what we're doing, right? We're like, no, and it's one of those 
<laughs> chief complaints that is the ones I dislike the most because I don't I don't know how to treat chronic pain. I know how to treat acute pain. Exactly. We don't know what we're doing. First, we're giving opioids. Then we're saying too many opioids. Take them away. Yeah. Well, what are we giving them instead? We don't know. So, you know, I've just always been fascinated by chronic pain for a long time. And then all this research has come out that a lot of it takes place in the brain. But that's not how we treat it, right? We treat the body. So I just started to look at that. So if it takes place in the brain or the brain plays a huge role in it, why is that not where we are going with our treatments? So, I mean, there is some, there's deep brain stimulation that people are doing implants. So when I found the virtual reality people and that they were really targeting the brain, I was fascinated by that. Yeah. Can you describe what exactly that means, that distinction between acute and chronic pain? So let's like take a case of someone who maybe broke their arm and they have acute pain and it'd be appropriate to treat that with opioids, but then a year later, they still have pain at the fracture site, but that's not coming from that acute injury, right? Right. So, you know, there's sort of this phenomenon of central sensitization, which is that the nervous system gets involved and they amplify these pain signals abnormally. So your body thinks something's still wrong. The alarm the alarm signals are still going off, but really you're okay. You're safe. The fracture, as you described, has healed, mm. but the brain is still sending out these pain signals and we aren't treating that. Mm. And how effective is VR technology for chronic pain? Surprisingly, <laughs> it seems quite effective. I am not I don't know about you. I am not a virtual reality person. I, I never really, maybe I've done it one time before I was reporting this article. I have some experience <laughs> with it. We have some <laughs> VR headsets in our lab, but I have not gone through one of these modules of that you write about some startup companies that have an intervention for chronic pain. So I have not participated in that myself. Yeah. So I, I didn't, wouldn't say I came to it as a skeptic, but I was not an enthusiast about yeah. this. And then I was just seeing these patients putting on the VR goggles and having these profound experiences, people crying into the headset. Wow. Huh. So it definitely was doing something. And then the studies showed how that they were pretty effective. And even three, six months after they were done with the VR module, it seemed to stick around the effects. That's amazing. And it's FDA approved, right? Yeah, they don't really approve it. They sort of authorize it. So the authorized Apply VR was the first company to sort of go through for chronic pain specifically. So it kind of paved the way for other companies. Yeah. I am a little skeptical too of this technology, but reading your article, I was like, oh, wow. It makes sense of why it would work. Do you think this is going to become commonplace or another tool that a doctor has in their toolkit to treat chronic pain? I mean, I hope so. When So when I went to Cedars-Sinai, they were trying to do it in the emergency room, which I think- What? Finally, really? Yeah, finally they did now, but I just the thought of our chaotic ER in these VR goggles. But, you know, they're slowly doing it. And I mean, I think we might get there someday. I mean, I, I think people, because of meta and everything, maybe people have become a little bit doubtful about technology or maybe it's overhyped. But I think there is a role- of using it 
Oh, that's, that's amazing. One question that I love to ask our guests is if a listener were to come visit you, where would you take them out to eat? Well, I used to live in the West Village, so I would say Cafe Clooney, but now I've moved to Brooklyn, so I will give Bernie's a shout out, but that's also because it's a few blocks for me. Awesome. Awesome. Bernie's, how do you spell it? B-E-R-N-I-E-S. <laughs> cool. Cool. We'll, we'll put a link to the restaurant in our show notes for those who are visiting Brooklyn and may want to check Helen's recommendation out. <laughs> well, I, I look forward to reading more articles from you. Can you give us a tease of what might be coming up in the future or is that like secret information? Top secret information. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you could you could follow Helen on Twitter. We'll put her handle uh, in the show notes. And when her next article drops, read it. Thanks, Helen, for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Check out Helen's article in the New York Times. There's a link in the show notes. You can follow her on Twitter at D-R-H-E-L-E-N-O-U-Y-A-N-G. And you can reach out to me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U and on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab is produced by Rob Puglisi, editing by Fernando K. Rose. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.